Back in the 1930s, just before World War II, uh, the Prime Minister of England was Neville Chamberlain. Year after year, England's Prime Minister sought to avoid a direct confrontation with Adolf Hitler because he wanted to achieve peace without a fight. And so he influenced the surrounding countries to do the same, including Austria, France, and Italy. They had conference with, conferences with Hitler, they, they wrote letters, uh, they, they talked on the phone together. Uh, still, all the while, Hitler continued to invade and, and conquer these peaceful nations. In 1938, Chamberlain returned from Munich, Germany, with the famous Munich Agreement, a paper signed by Hitler declaring peace in our time. But as it turned out, appeasement was a great mistake. Washington Post columnist George Will said it well as he wrote recently, the lesson of Munich was this, when it is necessary to confront an expansionist dictator, sooner is better than later. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends, we, we have a, an expansionist dictator in our lives named Satan. Uh, he wants to take over territory inside of our hearts, and our fight here is not against flesh and blood. Uh, it's against this prince of the power of the air. When it comes to this enemy, confrontation is necessary. Uh, evil must be confronted, and so sometimes confrontation is the only path forward. So I ask you this morning a thought-provoking question. Is there anything in your life or in your heart that God is asking you to confront in your spiritual life? In other words, what are you allowing to reside inside of you that God would not want to reside inside of you? Maybe it's a habit that's impure that you have. Perhaps it's a business practice that you know is not pleasing to God. Maybe it's an attitude of bitterness that must be addressed head on? Is there anything that God is asking you to confront in your spiritual life? Travel, me, travel with me, if you would, back to the story of 2 Kings chapters 9 through 12. Would you uh, please? I'm going to, I'm going to uh, show you some similar dynamics at play in our passage. This is an overview of those four chapters. I won't be able to cover every detail. You'll have to go back and get those on your own, but I will give you the lay of the land and uh, kind of flesh out the basics for you there. So open up your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 9, if you will. You'll see three movements in our passage uh, that are represented by the three main characters. You're going to see an anointed exterminator. Uh, you're going to see a bitter and evil queen. And then third, you're going to see the secret son of David, the anointed exterminator, a bitter and evil queen, and the secret son of David. You'll see who they are as the message unfolds today. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Heavenly Father, we bow our heads, close our eyes for a moment, thanking you for uh, your word, for preserving this text for us that we might learn from you today. Thank you for allowing us to gather in this fashion. We give you uh, thanksgiving and praise for this good gift. I thank you for your hand on our ministry and indeed on our lives. We ask that you'd search our hearts now. Uh, try us and know and see if, there's, see if there's anything not pleasing to you uh, in our hearts. And we ask you, like David, to create in us a new heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And we pray, God, that you would bless our time in your word. Make it rich and make it real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to hit the ground running today, okay? So 2 Kings chapter 9 gets off pretty quickly. It says this, the prophet Elisha, you remember him, uh, summoned a man from the company of the prophets, remember them, and he said to him, uh, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of olive oil with you, and go look for Jehu. Go to him. 
and uh, get him away from his companions and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Now the prophets had this ritual back then of anointing the uh, kings with oil. It was a symbol of God's Holy Spirit that would rest upon this uh, leader. And so Elisha says, this is what I want you to do. He sends the prophet out. He goes, he finds Jehu. He's a key military commander of that day. Uh, He was in a staff meeting with the rest of his fellow soldiers. And then he pulls uh, King Jehu aside to give him this message. The text actually records this secret conversation. Verse 6, then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. And here's what I want you to do. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. Then he opened the door and ran. Now, the reason why he ran is it was really dangerous to anoint a new king, especially while the current king was still alive and still on the throne. You may remember that King David was anointed by Samuel, and then uh, Saul was still king, and Saul went after and tried to kill David after that, right? So now we have this uh, secret anointing, and we have this new king, in God's eyes at least, and his name is Jehu. Uh, Jehu's the 10th king of the north, and he's going to establish this new dynasty, and the text is really clear that God has anointed Jehu uh, for one reason and one reason only. It is to uh, be his his chosen instrument to confront the evil house of Ahab. Have you ever had to hire an exterminator service at your house, like you have some sort of pest problem or carpenter ants or something like that? One time we had these ants that were coming in from we didn't really know where, so you know we hire this company, they come out, and, and, their, and their job is to kill every last one of those pests. Jehu is like the Viking pest control of the Israelite spiritual kingdom. Uh, He's going to wipe out every single family member of King Ahab. Now, uh, Jehu uh, is going to be the new king. And the first thing he does is he goes after the current king, Ahab's son, the king of the north, and his name happens to be Joram. He hunts him down. He's on the battlefield, actually. He's been wounded fighting against another enemy. And uh, Jehu gets in his chariot, gathers together his military Um, men and rides out to go after him. It's about a 45-minute ride, and they hear him coming. They send out a messenger, and they say, you know, who's this coming? We hear some noise. What's going on? Who's that leader? Who's coming after us? Uh, Maybe this is trouble. There's a lookout that goes out and sees who's coming, and here's what the lookout says. It says, the driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a maniac. Now, to me, this is a little comic relief in the scriptures, I think. Evidently, Jehu is barreling down the ancient highway here, and he drives kind of like a teenage boy who likes NASCAR. And his uh, driving evidently had developed quite the reputation. Perhaps he had speeds that were a little uh, alarming. Some of you parents, you have children who drive a little bit like Jehu, don't you? King Joram says, all right, let me go out and see what's going on for myself, and says this in verse 21. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, rode out, each in his own chariot, to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now let's pause right there because I just, you know, I'm throwing all kinds of names at you and all kinds of stuff. Let's just make a couple observations. First, do you remember that plot of land? Do you remember that? We, we, we were introduced to this piece of property a few weeks ago. That's the same piece of property that was stolen uh, through the ancient version of eminent domain by King Ahab and his wife Jezebel out of greed. They actually killed the owner, Naboth, and they seized his property. Out of all the pieces of land in the, in the land of Israel, this is where they're actually going to serve up justice for Ahab's family. Now, the second thing I want you to notice about this text is this is one of the rare occasions where the king of the north is actually 
partnering and fighting with the king of the south together. Did you see that? That's actually not very common. The reason is because they were facing a common enemy. But the, the other reason is these two guys are actually related. Let me just show you their family tree. From the house of Ahab, the king of the north, was Joram. And then from the house of David, the king of the south, is Ahaziah. Here's these two kings, but look a little bit more carefully at their family tree. You're going to see that what happened was that King Ahaziah's father, a guy named Jehoram, who was king before him, was married to one of Ahab's daughters named Athaliah. See, what happened was there's like a family alliance thing going on where the king of the north says, okay, I'm going to give you my daughter, and the king of the south says, okay, I'm going to give you my son, and they're going to get married, and that's going to be an exchange and an alliance of peace between the two nations. That is actually not good. God said we should not do that. He said, I want to keep the line of David pristine. I've made a covenant with the house of David. that Their son is always going to be on the throne forever. Uh, but nonetheless, the wall of separation between David's dynasty and Ahab's descendants is crumbling. This is actually where the problems really get heated up. When they make this decision, this moment of compromise in their lives uh, creates all kinds of havoc later, and now we're going to see the chickens come home to roost. The story continues as Jehu comes out to confront these two kings. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? His answer is striking. How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? I just love that question. It's, just, it's kind of savage to me. How can there be peace as long as the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother abound? At this point, the king of the north knows he's in trouble. And so it says this in 23, Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, treason, Ahaziah. Then, then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his, pierced his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to his off, chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. So one shot. How's that, Lee Barnes? Pretty good, right? That's the end of Joram. Next, he turns his attention to the king of the south. 27, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw what had happened, he fled. Jehu chased him, shouting, kill him too. They wounded him in the chariot on the way up to Gur near Ablium, but he escaped to Megiddo and died there. So he kills Ahab's son, and now he kills Ahab's son-in-law, if you follow that. Two down, one to go. He saves the best for last, or I should say the worst for last, as he now sets his sights on confronting the evil queen. 30, then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she put on eye makeup, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. Now, what's going on with the eye makeup? We don't really know. Uh, some people say that perhaps she was going to try to seduce Jehu uh, and get him to form an alliance with her. I think that's uh, probably a likely scenario. Uh, but after this, she actually insults him. Uh, look at verse 31. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, you Zimri? You murderer of your master? She calls him Zimri. Now, what's that about? Well, Zimri was a king who murdered his master, but he only reigned for seven days. Not seven years, seven days. And so to call someone a Zimri was an insult. You know how if you call someone a Benedict Arnold in our country, you're implying something about their character as a traitor? To call someone a Zimri was to imply that their, their reign is illegitimate and it is short-lived. So she insults Jehu, 
And he looks up in verse 32 at the window and calls out, who is on my side, who? Two or three eunuchs look down on him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Really gross, really brutal story here, but it does have a certain poetic justice to it. This is the queen that was so haughty, so arrogant, so puffed up, uh, so obsessed with her appearance, and here Jezebel dies an ugly, ugly death until there's hardly anything left of her. She's not going to receive a proper burial. This is the end of the evil queen Jezebel. Now after this, I don't have time to go through all the details, but in chapter 10, Jehu continues and he kills 70 of the sons of Ahab. They're all beheaded. He stacks up the heads in these two different piles, really gross, really gruesome, right at the city gate just to show who's, who's really in charge. He gets rid of every last child of Ahab. Ahab's house has to go. And then the last thing he does is kind of more of a spiritual matter. He, he gets together all of Ahab's priests uh, the, the, the priests of Baal, and tells them to gather together at the temple of Baal because we're going to have a great sacrifice. What they don't realize is after they gather together that, is that they are the great sacrifice. He gathers them in one spot and takes them all out at the same time, destroying Baal worship with one full swoop. It actually tells us that he turns the temple of Baal into the city latrine. That's 2 Kings 10, 27. Jehu wipes out the last remnant of the house of Ahab. Now, why does he have to do all that? Have you, ever, have you ever gone to the doctor and you have some kind of cold or some kind of bug and they give you antibiotics and the doctor says, even if you're feeling better, I want you to finish this course of antibiotics because you need to finish it because there could be a last little remnant of bacteria in your body. You need to get every last, because if you don't get everything, that thing's going to come back with a vengeance. And so finish it. How many of you, your doctors ever talked talk to you that? And, and then we don't listen, right? So, okay. So this is, this is the point here. He wants, he wants to wipe out all possible. See, see, what's going on spiritually in the nation is the land was infected with uh, with idolatry, and now this infection has, has been exposed and it has to be completely removed, eradicated. Jehu's the exterminator, the leader that God uses to wipe out the influence of Ahab. Jehu then becomes king, new king in town. He's the king of the north, he's got the longest reign in Israelite history. Uh, his dynasty actually lasts 100 years. His dynasty is the longest dynasty, as I should say that. Now, before you feel sorry for Ahab and his family, if ever a royal household or royal line deserved God's justice, it was Ahab and Jezebel. They were greedy. They were idolatrous. They were murderous. They were killing the prophets of God. And God was very patient with them for a season but finally, God had had enough of this wickedness in his house, and so God's justice came upon Ahab. Justice was promised. Now, what does this kind of text have to do with us? What do we learn from this first movement? Well, I think the lesson is clear. The lesson is that God will bring justice upon sin, and everyone is accountable to him. Daniel Webster, the guy who wrote Webster's Dictionary, was once asked, what's the most sobering thought you've ever had? And he said, the most sobering thought I've ever had is that I'm personally accountable to God. You see, that, that's what we learn about God's justice. It's personal. He singles out Ahab and Jezebel for their wrongdoing. God's justice is not just personal. Did you notice it's thorough? He says, Jehu, I want you to wipe out every last descendant. And it's not just personal and thorough. It's also final. He, 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 let, he wipes out the entire line. 
destroyed forever. Now, a lot of people read these Old Testament stories and they complain about uh, these types of stories that reveal the justice of God as if the God of the Bible is somehow capricious and cruel. Not so. The God of the Scriptures is merciful and gracious and loving and really, really patient, but the God of the Bible is also perfectly just, and he cannot forever let unrepentant sin be swept under the rug. See, the problem is so many people in our culture think they know God and they think they can speak for God, but often they speak out of turn. Even believers can fall into this trap. Take a look at this quote from John L. Cooper, the uh, the guy from the band Skillet, who says this in his upcoming book, Awake and Alive to Truth. He said, the Christian who does not know what God loves and hates is in danger of believing that God approves of evil things. See, this is why we have to study and know the scriptures to inform our conscience, right? And so we have to ask ourselves again, is there anywhere in my life, in my heart, where the house of Ahab is residing on the inside of me? Is there anything in my life that God wants me to confront? The answer to that question is obviously yes. We all have parts of our heart that God wants us to deal with, but we have a choice. We can either humble ourselves before God in that area, or we can be humbled by God, and I would strongly recommend the former, not the latter. That's the lesson of movement one, which leads us to movement two as we are introduced to an evil and bitter uh, queen, a bitter and evil queen queen. See, see, while Jehu had knocked off all of the men, it doesn't say that he did anything in terms of the women of the house of Ahab. Jezebel actually had a daughter. Remember her? She was the mother of King Ahaziah, who was the king of the south, who was just killed, right? And so while Jehu takes over as the king of the north, she takes over for her son, who was uh, killed from the south. And she vowed that she was going to be the first queen, the only queen of Judah. And she is not happy. We meet her in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she proceeded to destroy the whole royal family. Now, I'm reading this text, I'm studying this this week, and I'm going, what is the matter with this lady? Why is she going after the royal family? There seems to be some sort of, is she nuts? Is she crazy? Does she go off the deep end? And you don't really realize exactly what would be her motivation until you study a little deeper, because the text doesn't come out and tell you this, but I just sat down and I started drawing out the family tree, and I started to realize, wait a minute, take a look at this family tree again. Why is this woman so ruthless? Why is she killing her own grandsons, all the royal princes? This, this, talk about not a peaceful transition of power here, right? She's Ahab's daughter. That's why. Her allegiance is to Ahab. So she says, okay, you want to kill my father's family? You want to kill my brother, who was the king of the north? You also want to kill my son? Well, guess what? Guess what? I'm going to start knocking off your house. You want to knock off the line of Ahab? Well, I'm going to destroy the line of David. So that's her plan. So you see on a human level that she's revengeful and that she's angry and that she's bitter, but you also see on a spiritual level that God had made a covenant to David that he would always have a son that would be on the throne. And so Satan knows this and he has always tried to destroy the line of David, the line of Judah. And so here he's working through this bitter and evil queen. She's making a mess. Do you see what hangs in the balance with her activity here? Can you imagine if she was successful in her effort to bring about this genocide? She would have wiped out the entire line of David. 
there would be no Messiah. There would be no kingdom. We wouldn't all be living happily ever after. We'd all be living miserably ever after if she was successful. And so God sees this, and God says, I'm going to intervene. And the way he intervenes is through what happens in Movement 3, the secret son of David. See, Athaliah had thought that she had killed all of her grandsons, except there was still one left named Joash. Uh, we meet him in verse 2. It says, but Jehoshaba, I know there's a lot of names today, sorry, Jehoshaba, the daughter of King Jehoram, and the sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the royal princes who were about to be murdered. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom to hide him from Athaliah, so he was not killed. He remained hidden with his nurse at the temple of the Lord for six years while Athaliah ruled the land. So she just so happens to be King Ahaziah's sister. Her name's Jehoshaba. Uh, her name means God swears. I think there's some covenant significance there with the, the oath that God swore to David to keep a son on the throne. And so Jehoshaba comes, and she actually hides her nephew. And, um, you know, there's this baby. His name's Joash, and she thinks it's her job to protect this, this little boy from, from, from Athaliah. And so as his aunt, she smuggles him as a baby out of the palace and over to the temple. And uh, she does this because her husband's actually the high priest. And then uh, she and he raised this boy in the temple secretly for six years. Now, it turns out that she's married to uh, Jehoiada, the high priest, and these foster parents begin to show this king the ways of, of, of God. And so I want you to think about these two people for just a second because there's a lot of evil people in this story, but how about a shout-out to these two self-sacrificial godly servants who step up to make sure David's line gets continued, right? Here's this godly woman. How in the world she came from this family? I have no idea there, but by the grace of God, somehow this hero shows up in the story, and by a miracle, she kind of gets it. She knows the son of David. She knows the stories. She knows the covenant. And she, she gets her husband in on this deal. And, and then the two of these two godly leaders are faithful, self-sacrificial, uh, you know, godly believers full of hope in God's promises. What a, what a contrast to virtually everybody else in this story. Everybody's intoxicated by selfish ambition. And here's God's people motivated by spiritual dedication. That's where we need to be, folks. Let me show you the family tree one more time. Here's little Joash. All their hopes were wrapped up in this little baby boy. This is such a common theme in salvation history, isn't it? Abel gets killed by his brother Cain. Oh, who's going to be the son that's going to crush the serpent's head? Seth comes along, the new baby boy. Abraham and Sarah are promised a son, Isaac. When's he going to come? All of a sudden, Isaac is born. All their hopes are wrapped up in this little baby boy. Moses is supposed to be drowned by Pharaoh, and then he's miraculously rescued out of the water. All their hopes are wrapped up in this baby boy. Hannah, finally, she was barren, but then gives birth to Samuel, and all the people's hopes are wrapped up in this baby boy. This is a picture of things to come the one who would be born a child and yet a king. All of our hopes are wrapped up in him. Isn't this the story that keeps getting told even throughout secular history? It's about the legends of King Arthur. There's a king. He's not on the throne now, but he's coming in the future. 
Where do we get these ideas? The fantasy story of Narnia with Prince Caspian who's coming to ascend the throne. How about the Lion King? Where's Simba, the one who has the right to rule the animal kingdom, right? Where do we get all these stories from? There's a memory trace deep inside of the human psyche that knows we want a king. We need a king. The king is coming. Here's this tiny baby. After six years go by, it's time to like bring him out of hiding. And, and a, after six long years of Athalia's reign of terror, the high priest and his wife decide that they're going to present him. Take a look at verse 12. It says, Jehoiada, the high priest, brought out the king's son and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant, that's probably the book of Deuteronomy, and proclaimed him king. They anointed him, and the people clapped their hands and shouted, long live the king. You've got to picture this. See, this is like a seven-year-old kid. They bring him out, and he's now the heir, the son of David that they have been waiting for. And they're like, oh my goodness, here he is. They think of him like he's a son of God himself. It's amazing. The priest brings him out publicly. The people accept him. They rejoice. He's got popular support. they got wild applause going on, uh, all kinds of trumpets and fanfares and joy. Wouldn't you have loved to be there on this inauguration day? The king is here. There's only one problem. Athalia hears about this. And she said, well, what's all the commotion going on over at the temple? Take a look at verse 13. When Athalia heard the noise made by the guards and the people, she went to the people at the temple of the Lord. She looked, and, and there was the king standing by the pillar as the custom was. The officers and the trumpeters were beside the king, and all the people of Israel, all the land, were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. Then Athalia tore her robes, and she cried out, treason, treason. Sidebar, here she accuses them of treason. Who's the real traitor here? Athalia is. She's the one who seizes the throne, starts wiping everybody out, uh, kills almost the whole line of David in the process. King Joash is the rightful heir, not her. So at this point it says this, they seized her as she reached the place where the horses enter the palace grounds, and there... She was put to death. The king then took his place on the royal throne. All the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was calm. It's a happy ending to the story. Finally, order is restored. Joash goes on to uh, reform worship in the temple. Through King Joash, his name means the fire of, of Yahweh, he, he was the youngest person to ever be crowned king over over Judah at seven years old. And King Joash reigns for the next 40 years, rightfully sitting as the king on the throne. He's one of the few good kings in the Bible. Now, I just want you to think about this pattern for a second. A king is born. A king is preserved in infancy. A king is revealed by a high priest. A king is anointed in the temple. A king is avenged against all of his enemies. And a king is now enthroned over the people. The history fits a pattern, doesn't it? Just like Joash, the Lord Jesus was born a baby boy. Just like him, the Lord was anointed as well. Just like him, the Lord would be avenged. And just like him, the Lord will ascend to and occupy his throne one day as the rightful ruler of the universe. 
See, what we have here in Joash and in all of these kings, really, are shadows and patterns and pictures and a trajectory of images that begins to point forward into the future with prophetic significance. There would be one to come who would be the rightful heir of David, a son of God, a king. Only this king would die for the sins of his people. And he has promised to come again to reign. So what do we learn from this ancient story from 2 Kings 9 through 12? Well, it's a surprisingly relevant lesson that we all need right now. The lesson is this, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how chaotic this world gets or how ungodly the rulers of this world become, we place our hope in the fact that one day the long-awaited son of David will come and take his seat. No matter how chaotic this world gets or how ungodly the rulers of this world become, we place our hope in the truth that one day the long-awaited son of David will come and take his seat. Just like us in our lifetime, there were lots of people in power, lots of ungodly people who occupied positions of authority. But no matter how chaotic it got and no matter how wicked their rulers were, they knew it was only for a season. They knew one day the long-awaited son of David would come. Friends, we need this lesson right now. Friends, we need this lesson this week. This week, the American people will elect the next president of the United States. We are living in chaotic times. As a pastor, I have never told people and will never tell people how to vote. I encourage you to vote and to vote your values and to vote your conscience. But please remember this, whatever happens on Tuesday, the United States of America is an experiment. The kingdom of God is forever. Let's pray. As the worship team comes, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. I'm reminded of the song that says, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there is something about that name. Lord, would you help us in our tumultuous and chaotic world to place our faith in the son of David? Would you allow us to search our own hearts for where the house of Ahab has taken up residence. And Holy Spirit, would you do your great cleansing work in your people. I pray, God, that you'd find us faithful to you, finding our hope in you, having a sure foundation on the rock of your promises, that your kingdom is forever. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.